spilled sap remover on my shoe and it went through into my sock and then into my foot. And at first I thought it wasn't a big deal. Mm-hmm. But then my foot started burning like a bastard. So I took off my shoe, mm-hmm. took off my sock, threw my sock away, poured a couple bottles of water over my foot, and then uh, wrapped it in microfibers, put it back <laughs> in my shoe, and finished the shift. You a beast. You wrap it in microfibers. We have the, some of them that are like really smooth. Mm-hmm which are worthless for doing anything on cars. You need that bit of fiber in there. Mm-hmm. But the smooth ones work all right as a bullshit sock. If you put one around your toe part, <laughs> yeah, one around your heel, sock. just put you look like yeah, an idiot. Yeah, but. Well, shit, you don't want to be uncomfortable sliding mm-hmm. in your boot. Mm-mm. Mm-mm. That boot without the sock is a... Uh... Tennis shoe, but no, still, tennis shoe. Yeah, still. still. And it had sap remover on it still, so it was like... <clears throat> That sounded like, remind me of the paint in the story. Yeah. Down, yep. <laughs> I had a piece of gum with paint thinner in it come out of a cup holder and into my mouth. Like, it didn't, it wasn't, it like went in and out, you know. It uh-huh. was an in-out kind of but thing. But it was enough for you to act It was like enough it was for me to throw in. up. Yeah. Because I was disgusted. Which, yeah, you had and to. that paint thinner burned. Honestly, I felt like you had to. Yeah, that was nasty. Yeah. I feel like that's I was, your body, I was, too. I dumped it in the cup holder. It was like the back seat of a minivan, right? So I dumped it in the cup holder and then was using a screwdriver to, like, chip like away at PTSD the gum. I got PTSD on the back seats of Jimmy. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. Especially the Honda Odysseys. There is, I mean, I've never seen more disgusting things than that. Except for when Cody got stabbed by the fucking... Coach got stabbed? Syringe, yeah. Ooh! I'm pretty sure he went straight to the hospital. Yeah, he? yeah. He had blood tests done for that. But it, it, I think it was, like, a diabetic needle, okay. you know, but still. Yeah, oh, yeah, absolutely. And then I found biohazard boxes full of like bloody tubes and stuff Mm -hmm. i just brought them up to parts and was like i don't know what you're gonna do with this but wear two gloves Mm -hmm. before you touch it i'm glad you're good though coach yeah good job that was weird auction car oh yeah oh stick his hand under the seat it's like it's like if it was a retail maybe your mind wouldn't be so yeah auction cars are disgusting i mean they're they're the epitome of filth they're so bad even walzer couldn't sell them so you know Mm -hmm. they have to be like the worst of the worst cars Mm -hmm. when they bought my car they gave me 300 dollars for my buick right Mm -hmm. and then it sold at auction for 250 it was great Ooh, fuck them yeah fuck them that was awesome they took a 50 dollar hit on that one hell yeah that your shit was pretty your shit was working though but it was old it wasn't working really the no, power what I mean steering by working, and all that. What I mean yeah. by working, it, it, gas. Point A to point B. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Gas and brake. Yep. Yeah. R.I.P. 96 Buick Century. You don't have to throw it in there. <laughs> Look it up. Good looking out. <laughs> Hello, ladies and gentlemen. Welcome, everyone, to another brand new episode of the Bumblebutt Podcast. Today, Herschel, we're going to be doing what I consider... Out of the norm. I kind of like to cover cases that are small, maybe unheard of. Yeah. Maybe don't have the traction of a lot of the big boys. Right. But what we're doing today bucks that trend. We're doing the Hillside Stranglers. Mm, that's a big time. Big boys. This is one that almost everyone's heard of. I've actually heard of these guys, the Hillside Stranglers. And if you haven't heard of them by that name, you've heard the name Kenneth Bianchi before. Hmm. And that that is another one. So, everyone's heard of them. Everyone knows him. Let's hope I can bring something new, something fun to the oh, story. We are, bro. That's bogus. <laughs> Just wait for the bomber to go over. Yeah. <laughs> LA is huge. Not only is it huge, it's busy. 
It takes a lot to get the city whipped up into a fervor, as murders are an accepted part of nightly life, especially if one were to work in a high-risk industry like prostitution. (laughs) As a consequence of this, when three dead sex workers were found strangled and dumped in the hillsides, nobody besides a few keen-eyed detectives lost any sleep over it. For those detectives, they knew this was the opening salvo of a very long war. Mm. On Thanksgiving week 1977, five young women and girls were found on the hillsides of Glendale Highland Park area. These five victims were not prostitutes, but quote-unquote nice girls, as the media would dub them. They were abducted from clean-cut, middle-class neighborhoods. One victim was only 12, and another just 14. This was more than enough to engage and terrify the numb city of L.A., sending it into a panic. The term Hillside Strangler was coined by the papers, even though investigators believed there was more than one perp involved in these crimes. Those papers are always like that fuel to the fire, don't they? Always. It doesn't matter if it's a storm coming in, yeah, a bro. killer, a Stands con man, bro. they just will tell you the worst of the yeah. worst Ooh. in order to sell the newest yeah. iPhone. Oh, yeah. <laughs> Like, hey, you want to hear about this kid getting raped? Well, hold on. I got to show you a commercial about this iPhone. (laughs) That's good. Gun safety enrollment went way up. House lock sales were through the roof. And breeders couldn't keep big dogs in stock. (laughs) None of this seemed to help, however, as the strangler or stranglers didn't have any problem finding new victims. Yeah, strangling is easy. Strangling is easy. Get like me. On Sunday, November 20th, 1977... LAPD homicide detective Sergeant Bob Grogan was cracking his first beer to celebrate his full day off when he was called to an obscure hilly area between Glendale and Eagle Rock. Mm -hmm. It was damn near impossible to find the site. He made a note that whoever was dumping bodies up here has a map-perfect knowledge of the area. Yeah, you probably had to be like a park ranger or some shit. Mm. Mmm! Somebody that's spent time just fucking around, like learning all the intricate back roads. The victim was a girl from a modest, middle-class neighborhood. Grogan noted the ligature marks on her neck, both wrists, and both ankles. When he turned the girl over, blood oozed from her rectum. Damn. She had obvious extensive bruising on both breasts, and strangely, the girl had two puncture marks in her arm, but no sign of the track marks going up a vein you were guaranteed to see on a skin popper. So you said middle class, right? Middle class. She this was not area, a heroin addict. Yeah, and this, but this area was more like a suburb. So it was more like a middle class too. So it's, she was right in the area she was supposed to be in. Up in there. Yeah, she okay. was right where she, she was supposed to be. Exactly. Yeah. I was thinking like, if it was like, damn, suburb? So like that if she, she was out, from- out tricking around. But no, she wasn't. She was just a kid. All right. Where a kid can be a yeah, kid. Man, that's sad, man. It's fucked up. Rectal bleeding. Yeah. Yeah. Examining in macro... Grogan noted that the foliage around the victim hadn't been disturbed at all, and there were no drag marks on the body. The crafty sergeant noted that she was killed elsewhere, and a man, possibly two, had carried her out here, making this the secondary scene. A few hours later, Grogan's partner Varney was called to the other side of the same hilly area where two dead girls had just been found by a nine-year-old boy treasure hunting through a trash pile. Mm. They were heavily decomposed and covered in insects. Once again, there was no indication this was the primary scene and no evidence that the bodies had been dragged anywhere. So somebody was actually carrying Mm -hmm. these victims to to their dumping spot. And they're just throwing them down. Mm Mm-hmm. 
I wonder was they just throwing them or placing them. These ones, it's it seems more like a toss because I mean mm. they were in a trash pile. Okay. These two were literally in a trash pile. These girls were quickly ID'd as Dolores Cepeda, 12, and Sonia Johnson, 14, who had both been missing for about a week. They'd last been seen getting off the school bus at St. Ignatius Catholic School, then walking over to a two-tone sedan and chatting with someone on the passenger side. Hmm. Stranger danger, man. Stranger danger. Don't go to their cars, bro. It's L.A. in the 70s. It's serial killer nirvana. Mm -hmm. They're everywhere. Yeah. They're killing girls that are hitchhiking and talking to them. Psst. Why? But that sounds like victim blaming. And we're, yeah. I'm wearing rose-colored glasses and hindsight is 2020 in here <laughs> and throwing all the expressions out but there. Look, bro. Stay away from the cars. Stay bro. away from strangers. I don't talk to strangers. Yeah, don't even don't go near the cars. Walk off. Even if a guy try to holler at you. I'm 31, walk. I think. <laughs> I still don't talk to strangers. Yeah, but I think that's because of another reason. Yeah, probably. I'm shy. In introvert. Exactly. Yeah. I'm I'm cripplingly shy. No, I wouldn't say crippling. You wouldn't talk to me. If I'm around people all the yeah, time. Yeah, but cripplingly shy. Even if you around them, you ah. Uh, at some point, that becomes like an actual mental problem. Mm. If you're around people that much and yeah, you can't, can't open even, up yeah. at some point. Yeah, that's true. I don't think you're like that, though. No, maybe I just not. think you just got to get to know a motherfucker yeah. first. I fill think I just out. feel yeah, really feel overwhelmed out. at first, mm. but then I, it's, I don't outwardly show it, and which then, is and, good. And, but you know what? And there are some people that you just need to be like, well, you know what? I'm not going to talk to you. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Stranger danger. Yeah. You know, <laughs> something about us don't click, yeah. bro. There's something not right here. Yeah. <laughs> I'm not feeling any love. Yeah. There's no pistons running. This mm -mm. gunked up, bro. It's not. At least put some seafoam in it. bitch. Bro. <laughs> The next day, the girl Grogan was investigating was ID'd as Christina Weckler. She was a shy 20-year-old honor student at the Pasadena Art Center of Design. As he searched her apartment, he almost broke down from rage and sadness. Krista's belongings and journal indicated that she was a brilliant and serious young woman who had a bright future ahead of her. Grogan couldn't help but put his own teenage daughter in Weckler's shoes. When Christina's family came to pick up her belongings... Grogan vowed to bring the killer to justice. On November 23rd, the day before Thanksgiving, another young woman's body was discovered near the Los Feliz off-ramp of the Golden State Freeway. Is it an off-ramp? Mm-hmm. Damn. It's kind of a hilly area, the oh, Los okay, Feliz off-ramp. Okay. So it's -ramp. like kind of secluded a little bit too there? Yeah, you know how we have off-ramps that are sketchy. If you leave like the main cities, if you go past Woodbury, you go up to like Forest Lake... A lot of those off-ramps just have, like, a you holiday what, gas station. You know what? I, don't, I wouldn't know that because I do kind of stay my black ass out of them areas. That's so. smart, too. <laughs> like, it's, it says what it is. That's like, smart, I too. I just don't. When you start seeing more pickup trucks than yeah, anything else, yeah. stay you away. might be in the... Yeah. Even with that hat on, you might be yeah. in the wrong spot. Thank you. Yeah. And I do like the hat. Thank you, bro. You look like Darius Rucker. I need to look up who that is. I think he was uh, Hootie and the Blowfish, but I'm not sure. <laughs> Her name was Jane King, and she'd been there for about two weeks. She'd been strangled like the others, but on sight they couldn't determine whether or not she'd been sexually assaulted. Authorities wasted very little time in establishing a task force composed of roughly 30 mixed LAPD, Glendale PD, and sheriff's deputies. Like all task forces for high-profile cases, they were soon flooded with worthless tips from well-meaning citizens and pranksters alike. Hmm. 
The killers were back to work after the holiday weekend. On Tuesday, November 29th, Grogan was called up into the hills around Glendale's Mount Washington. A young, dead, naked woman was found strangled and partially in the road. The ligature marks on her ankles, wrists, and neck were the hillside strangler's calling card. Mm. But this victim had what looked to be burns on her palms. Mm. Much like the strange puncture marks on Weckler's arms, it looked as though the killers were experimenting with different methods of torture. Mm. It had to be. Yeah, you don't just get burned-ass palms for no No. reason. Another difference from earlier victims. There was a tiny track of dried liquid on the body, which was sticky, and had attracted a convoy of ants. Mm -hmm. If this was semen or saliva, it was possible they could determine the killer's blood type. Tests on semen found in earlier victims had turned up nothing. So wait, I could nut on the ground and they think ants would come to it? Uh, Yeah, well they will. Ants will take anything. How would I know that? Well, semen is mostly protein, and ants need it need protein so that they come and they take mm. it back to their little ant colony but they do that with doritos if you drop them yeah, on the but floor I, but we specifically talk about they'll do a poop i didn't know that hmm i guess i had a lot to learn about ants yeah i did just learn that they like they're arthropods i'll they, tell you that they like hydrogen peroxide because it helps with the fungal diseases Oh, so they don't get that one that takes over their brain and makes no. them climb up to the <laughs> highest know. part of a tree. Jump off? It's a zombie virus that ants have. I hope it but, can... But it, but it makes trees, though, doesn't it? Well, no, it doesn't. It makes more of that fungus. Oh, okay. Like yeah. tree fungus. So. Yeah, I think so, yeah. I'm way off base here, I'm sure, but there is a fungus that causes ants I, to turn that, into zombies. I think any insect, though, really. Maybe. But I know ants for sure. Because it digs into their brain, right? Mm-hmm. Some shit like mm-hmm. that. Mm-hmm. Yeah, but peroxide <clears throat> does kill like fungal diseases. For so, ants. all right. Keep that in mind. <laughs> Set out a little dish of peroxide at night for <laughs> to, all your ants. To protect them. To protect your, your household ants. <laughs> <laughs> this victim was ID'd the same day as Lauren Wagner, an 18-year-old student who lived with her parents in the San Fernando Valley. Mm. Her parents had gone to bed expecting her home at her midnight curfew. I don't think I could go to bed without my kids being home. That's why I feel bad about Jody sometimes back in the day. I was a real asshole about it. So she would stay up till you come home? Not. She would just be mad. How old were you, though? Still 18, 19. 18, 19. That's the most... that's the worst time. No, that's what I'm saying. Because you think you're an adult and you're you, drinking. But you wasn't just a stick. I know, I'm not a you know, yeah. But at, at the same time, that's when kids are drinking and driving, doing bullshit that's stuff. True. That's the actual deadly I guess stuff. I, yeah, it is. I guess I wouldn't worry about that. But my girls, I guess I would. And I know that sounds sexist, though. It's all tough. It I is. have no idea. Thank you, bro. I appreciate you saying that. And I'm not a parent, so luckily. Nah, I don't not even the parent that. part. Just the whole thing about you saying, mm-hmm. like, man, mm-hmm. they've. You know, because I feel like I feel the same way as you. Like, how am I supposed to yeah. even start thinking about this? Yeah, I know. When her parents awoke the next morning, she wasn't in her bed, but her car was parked across the street and the driver's door was ajar. Mm. When Lauren's father questioned the neighbors, he learned the woman across the street, Beulah Stouffer, had seen the abduction. According to Beulah, Lauren pulled up to the curb at 9 p.m., two men pulled up alongside her. There was some kind of disagreement, and she ended up getting in their car. Mr. Wagner called Sergeant Grogan immediately. Beulah Stouffer wore thick glasses and was a severe asthmatic. 
She also owned a large Doberman that snapped at Grogan when he arrived to take her statement. Beulah was on the verge of a complete nervous breakdown, as she'd just been called by a man with a thick New York accent before Grogan got there. The caller asked her if she was the lady with the dog. When Beulah replied in the affirmative, the caller told her to keep her mouth shut about what she'd seen, or he would kill her. Beulah described the car as large and dark with a white top. As one of the men was dragging Lauren, apparently she tried to yell, You won't get away with this! So pretty much they didn't fuck with old girl because they had that big-ass dog right there. They didn't see her. Oh, okay, 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 okay. Mm-hmm. And they heard the loud-ass barking Doberman. Yeah, but they wouldn't have fucked with that lady with that big-ass dog. I wouldn't think so. That seems like a good way to get your throat you ripped strang- off. Yeah, you ain't gonna strangle that dog. Mm-mm. That motherfucker will... They're buff. <laughs> Those guys are like little bodybuilders. They literally have to shoot the dog. Yeah, yeah. And I don't think they want that noise. That's loud. Yeah. Ain't no abducting nobody behind gunshots. Beulah was thrown into such a shock, she didn't even tell her husband about this who had been home through this entire ordeal. Now she was in the middle of a combined panic and asthma attack. She was certain there were two perps. One was tall and young with acne scars. The other was older with a Latin flair. He was short with a bushy mop on top. It's a vida loca. loca. <laughs> Latino heat. That's what I'm thinking of. That's funny. Alright, go ahead. If they were placed in front of her, Beulah said she would certainly recognize them. Beulah claimed she'd seen all these events through her front window, but that was a good 30 feet from the abduction, not to mention through a pane of glass. With Beulah's terrible eyesight, Grogan was sure that she was actually in her front yard and dove for the bushes when the commotion started. Mm. Hopefully if they needed her, she would tell the whole truth when the time came. Mm. Why wouldn't she? Yeah, I don't know why she lied about it to begin with. Maybe... She was embarrassed that she dove for the bushes instead of trying to help or something. But you're an old, chubby, yeah, asthmatic you, there's, there's lady nothing, that can't yeah, see. You can't do anything. No. You kind of did the right thing. Yeah, but just, the even righter thing would have been calling the police immediately instead of going inside and hyperventilating for... Uh, yeah, that's some bullshit. Yeah. For real. You get in there, you go see it. See if you get a license plate number or something. No. Serious. The, the big two-tone sedan that helps a little... But you know what would help more? An exact license plate number. Yeah, they got names. With this latest murder, it was clear the entire city was their hunting ground. Nowhere was safe. At least when the crimes were confined to just Hollywood and Glendale, police could focus the investigation like a magnifying glass on those areas. But now, it was just a crapshoot. The Thanksgiving spree threw fresh light on three earlier murders of prostitutes, or at least suspected prostitutes, the mm. month earlier in October of 1977. <laughs> <The> suspected prostitutes. <laughs> on October 17th, a tall, full-legged black woman named Yolanda Washington was found raped, strangled, and dumped near Forest Lawn Cemetery. Mm. Almost two weeks later... On Halloween morning, Sergeant Frank Salerno from the L.A. County Sheriff's Department was dispatched to the town of La Crescenta, Mm -hmm. a bit north of Glendale, to investigate another dead woman. She was under a tarp to guard the neighborhood kids from having to see her laying close to the curb, but still in the road. She had bruises on her neck consistent with strangulation, as well as the calling card five-point ligature marks. Insects were still doing their work on the body, and there was a piece of green fluff on the victim's eyelid that Salerno bagged for forensics. Hmm. 
She wasn't killed here. The body was placed deliberately in a spot where it would be found quickly. Salerno posited she'd been carried from a car by possibly more than one man, as there were no drag marks on the body. Hmm. She was tiny and thin, weighing maybe 90 pounds when she was alive, and appeared to be no older than 16. The coroner determined she'd been strangled to death around midnight on Halloween morning, so about six hours before discovery. Hmm. She'd been raped and sodomized. I wonder why they leave her out to be seen. Yeah, why this one? Yeah. Why did they why did they put her in the road? Yeah, that almost makes you think, is that is this? It was clearly the intentional. Hillside, the hillside? I mean the five point ligature marks yeah. are enough. Yeah. The wrist, wrist, ankle, ankle, neck. Okay. And that definitely gave away. That's his that calling card. That's his yeah, system. But to leave him out. I don't know. I just a little different for him. Agreed. Agreed. I'm like ninety pounds. I'm like, oh, she was sixteen. Ninety pounds. God Still. damn. It's a tiny person. Yes. I can lift 90 pounds with one arm without even thinking about it. Imagine if you had two, a torso, a chest to help you lift all this. Yeah. Which, you know what I'm trying to say. Oh, yeah. Full leverage. Yeah. yeah. Woo. It's nothing. It's so easy. It's like a horse holding you, bro. Yeah. Yeah. It's nothing. It's nothing. It's like holding an eight-year-old boy. Bro. I can do that, too. Those guys are about 90 pounds, I think. <laughs> yeah, I guess. I don't know. Maybe that, I was. Yeah, 90 pounds sounds about good for somebody, though. I like it. You're, you're a human, bro. You got to at least weigh more than 90 pounds. You dude. have to. Otherwise, you're just a dog of some kind. Yeah. <laughs> a dog. Just a large dog. Yeah. After a few days and no positive IDs coming back from missing persons reports, Salerno persuaded the papers to run a piece on her to drum up some leads. Still, no one came forward. Mm -hmm. Salerno then took to the streets of Hollywood Boulevard with her picture in hand. This area was a known congregating place for teen runaways, drug addicts, skids, and people down on their luck. After an entire day of interviewing the street people, one name kept popping up. Judy Miller. She was a young and absolutely helpless prostitute, according to all the others. <laughs> helpless prostitute. She was like bad. She didn't know how to do anything. Mm -hmm. Not just like sexually, but like living. Damn. She didn't know how to take care of herself at all. Damn. And which return, you ain't getting no good prostitution going Heck on. Heck no. You can't get no good sleep, no good bathing, no good food, makeup. Like, ew. No, I'm going to go to her, mm -hmm. A man named Marcus Camden, who claimed to have at one point been a bounty hunter, hmm. said he'd seen Judy leaving the fish and chips restaurant at 9 p.m. the night before she'd been found dead. The little piece of green fluff on Judy's eyelid couldn't be identified. Salerno had to face the tough facts that he probably wouldn't be able to solve this girl's murder. Mm. One week later, on November 6th, 1977, another naked woman was found strangled, this time in Glendale near a country club. Salerno saw it flash by on the silent radio, got in contact with the Glendale detective. Right away, the similarities were slapping him in the face. Both had been ligature strangled. What's a silent radio, bro? It's like a, a little thing that has words on it that flashes by really quick for updates. So, like, for interdepartmental stuff, it'll be like, like, say a bunch of information real quick. Okay. It just so happens he caught it. Yeah, he was, like, Damn. looking at the right time and saw it. Damn. I'm pretty sure he plays, though. Oh, yeah, for oh, sure. Okay, okay. Like, the you only place I've seen him... The place I've seen him is at the courthouse when we went on a field trip, mm. and it looks like old school text that's just like racing by pretty much. Right. So he had to be sitting there for a minute though to get that shit. Uh, well, it's at his desk too. 
Like he can just like be looking at it while he's working on it. Okay, okay, okay. Like I was saying, the similarities seemed to slap them in the face. Like nuts. Both had been ligature strangled. Both bodies had been dumped within six miles of each other. Both had the same five point ligature marks. And there was evidence of rape in the latest victim, but not sodomy. Hmm. Looking at the scene where the body was dumped, Salerno was sure it would have taken more than one man to get the victim here. There was a giant guardrail between her and the road that would have taken two sets of hands to get the dead weight over. She was quickly ID'd as Lisa Caston, a 21-year-old waitress at the Health Fair restaurant on Hollywood and Vine. Hmm. She was last seen leaving her shift the night she was murdered about 9 p.m. Soon, Salerno tracked down the family of Judy Miller, the 16-year-old 90-pound girl, who positively ID'd her body. They were very poor and addicted to various substances. They weren't much help in knowing who their daughter hung around with or where. They were kind of lost on their own journeys. That's a dead end. Yep. Until Thanksgiving, Salerno was the only detective who knew there was a serial murderer on the loose. After the holiday, it would be all anyone in any branch of law enforcement could talk about. The investigation kicked into high gear. Just as the killers decided to take a few weeks off. My, my thing is, how did other police didn't think that it was a serial killer? And this only one police officer thought it was a serial killer. Because prostitutes. Mm-hmm. It yeah. wasn't until after after Thanksgiving when the nice girls were found. Mm-hmm. That's when everybody said, oh, it's oh a serial killer. yeah, yeah, yeah. Because when it's just prostitutes, what's the what's the big loss? That's not me saying that, of course. Mm-hmm. That's what, the, what, uh, that's what I was thinking. Yeah. yeah. That's what the taxpayer generally thinks. Yeah, bro, which is it's still a serial killer. Because once they start with the prostitutes, what makes you think they ain't going to end with somebody else anyway? Yeah, it's like the experimentation phase. Yeah, like, yeah. okay, let me stop doing the prostitutes and do, and do somebody with some tighter cooties. In mid-December, police were called to an empty lot on a steep hillside on Alvarado Street where a high-class call girl named Kimberly Diane Martin's body was found. She'd been on contract for Climax. And that was a modeling agency. Modeling agency. Uh, Prostitution. Yes, absolutely. (laughs) Cops this time had what they thought were two reasonable leads. Since she worked through a service, Climax had records of where they were sending their girls. Kimberly's last client had called her to apartment 114 at 1950 Tamarind, which turned out to be vacant. And the murderer had called from a payphone outside of the Hollywood Public Library on Ivar Street. Mm. Nothing came from these solid leads, unfortunately. And the killers went quiet for the rest of December and into the new year of 1978. So they chilled out. Mm-hmm. On Thursday, February 16th, a beautiful young girl named Cindy Hudspeth was murdered. Her strangled and violated body was found crammed in the trunk of her own Datsun and pushed off a cliff on Angeles Crest. When cops investigated the next day and the telltale five-point ligature marks were found, they immediately knew they didn't need to look down other avenues. The hillside strangler certainly Mm -hmm. didn't. They came back. Cindy was a 20-year-old store clerk that everybody liked. She planned on giving dance lessons to supplement her income as she was championship caliber. At uh, ballroom dance, you know. okay. Cindy was last seen in her apartment building at 800 East Garfield Avenue. She'd likely been on her way to Glendale Community College, where she worked at night answering the phones. Mm. Cindy lived right across the street from earlier victim Christina Weckler, 
and cops believed that at least one of the killers lived right here in Glendale. Too much of a coincidence. Yeah, right across the street. Mm-hmm. I mean, I would say, like, man, maybe they just saying the other one as they pull it up on one of them. Like, ooh. Oh. We still oh, got this one. yeah, sure, sure, sure. They're like, but no. file that away for later. We'll come back. Yeah, but no, this makes yeah. more sense. This makes more yeah. sense, yeah. In, in the neighborhood. He sees them every day. Yeah. He has a little sick thought process in mm-hmm. his mind. Mm-hmm. Like the Joker with his mm. apartment roommate. Yeah, that's true. Yeah. Good movie, by the way. Good movie. If you know anything, Herschel, about the LAPD and the L.A. Sheriff's Department, you'll know they have a long and contentious history. Squabbles, jurisdiction beefs, and territory issues limited cooperation between the two agencies and was a real help to criminals who were able to take advantage of the slippy, sloppy situation. Hmm, I wonder why. In this particular West Side Story, the shark Sergeant Grogan and the jet Detective Salerno fell in love in spite of their families. Actually, they just worked incredibly well together and made it a point to publicly and loudly share information with each other in the hopes that the other members of the LAPD and the Sheriff's Department would do the same. Mm. Lead by example. If your two most respected investigators are cooperating, maybe the rank and file will do the same underneath. Rarely does that work. Unfortunately. I think it's just two good cops and the rest are idiots. Mm Mm-hmm. Really, though, it doesn't matter how well the cops are getting along if the investigation is going nowhere. The very few clues and even fewer pieces of evidence they had produced no solid suspects. They knew the type of guy they were looking for, but that wasn't enough in this huge, transient, metropolitan area. Here's the forensic profile they were working off of. What is it? (laughs) Strangler was white, Uh late 20s, early 30s, and either single, separated, or divorced In any case, not living with a woman. He was of average intelligence, unemployed, or existing off odd jobs. He was not one to stick around too long at a job. He had likely been in trouble with the law before. He was passive, cold, and manipulative all at once. He was the product of a broken family whose childhood was marked by cruelty and brutality at the hands of women. Grogan, half sarcastically after hearing the report, said, Gee, now all we gotta do is find a white guy who hates his mom. Bro, that is vague as fuck. Fuck yes it is. (laughs) I was like, what? That could be me. (laughs) (laughs) You get a denim vest, maybe. (laughs) (laughs) One unusual twist was the arrival of a German psychic in L.A. German psychic. He wrote in German what Grogan should be looking for. Two Italians, next line. Brothers, next line. Age about 35. We'll get into that in part two. <laughs> Go back to We Germany. get to have another psychic encounter like we did the Go other time. Go back to Germany. <laughs> <laughs> Go back, bro. Get back on the plane. Yeah. Go. Fucking nut. This other other last psychic, bro. Was awesome. Man, he blew my mind yeah. for the whole night, bro. Yep. I was like, but wait. <laughs> Wait, on the way home, like, dude, this is some crazy shit, bro. That was a good sight. Yeah, that was. This dude, he's already wrong. Yeah, he's already got it wrong. I don't even know what he's done, and he's already got it wrong. (laughs) Months passed, and the Strangler seemed to have retired. Mm. Slowly, the task force was bleeding detectives back to their units to work other cases. Mm. On January 12th, 1979, police in Bellingham, Washington 
were told that two Western Washington University students had gone missing. The two were roommates, Karen Maddich and Diane Wilder, and they weren't the type to just take off unexpectedly. Mm. When Karen didn't show up for work, her boss got worried. He remembered she'd taken a house-sitting job for a wealthy couple that had been offered to her from a security guard friend of hers. Bellingham PD contacted the security firm, who in turn contacted that security guard. Mm. The guard claimed no such thing had happened. He'd never even heard of these two girls. On top of that, he'd been at a sheriff's reserve meeting that night that they went missing. Hmm. When police looked into it and found the guard had not been present at that reserve meeting, they decided to contact the security guard directly. They found him to be a friendly little guy who had skipped that meeting as it was covering first aid, which he was already proficient in. The dipshit cops were immediately swooned by the bootlicking sheriff's reservist and found no indication the two roommates had met with foul play. They figured the two had just needed a weekend away from the stresses of school, and Karen simply forgot to let her boss know. Terry Mangan, former priest and current Bellingham police chief, was not comfortable or satisfied with that answer. When he investigated the girl's place, he found a very hungry cat, which seemed unusual. The pet looked absolutely pampered otherwise, including framed pictures of it with the two girls all over the house. In their kitchen, he found the Bayside address of the house they were supposedly sitting. Mangan looked closer at the security firm's record and found a guard's name associated with the Bayside address. Mm. The guard had also used a company truck that night. He told his boss he was taking it to get serviced, but the garage they used never received the truck. Mm. Chief Mangan was very concerned. He urged his highway patrol to check known or suspected dumping grounds, even the ones where assholes would abandon their appliances. Cops converged on the Bayside house address they got in the girl's kitchen. They found a wet footprint on the floor from a few hours earlier, but there was no sign of the girl's or Karen Mandich's missing car. Hmm. Detectives found a neighbor who'd been called by the security guard every day for the last two weeks to check on the house, except for the night the girls disappeared. That night when the guard called, he said he was having an alarm installed and it was of the utmost importance that the neighbor did not come by. It would set off a false alarm which would cost him money. Hmm. But they want no alarm in that motherfucking crib. Hell no. Because they would have tripped it if that was the fucking case. Hell yes. They would have they would have set it off on themselves. Like they, they like, would... dude, first of all, you call a neighbor every day except this day. It did come on, bro. You gave yourself away. You're an idiot. Yeah. You're a dumb shit. You but... could have just kept it, it, it's cold if you just keep calling. Like, how's the house? How's the house? How's the house? Even, yep. even you, di- he would make her go and like check the door handles and stuff like that and make sure nobody had broken in. Just keep doing it. Except that. for that day. That's weird. Because he was using the house mm-hmm. for something. For, for, for something. <laughs> You'll never guess what. <laughs> no. Next, Mangan went to the media. Shortly afterwards, a woman called in about a car that had been abandoned near her home in a heavily wooded area. Hmm. Inside the car were the bodies of Karen Maddich and Diane Wilder. Both had been strangled, and bruising on the body suggested other forms of torture. While the missing students' bodies were transported to the morgue, Mangan decided enough was enough. It was time to pick up the security guard for questioning. He gave police no trouble when they hauled him in. He was handsome, outgoing, friendly, warm, and smart. He was a family man, an articulate husband and father named Kenneth Bianchi, or Kenny as he was known to friends. Kenny was six foot even, trim, and muscular. That's him. 
His hair was well-groomed, and he sported a nice mustache, as was the style at the time. He lived with his long-term girlfriend-slash-common-law wife, Kelly Boyd, and their newborn son. Kelly couldn't believe her sweet and gentle man would be a suspect in such a horrendous case. Kenny's employer also couldn't believe their sweet and gentle man was responsible. They considered him a cornerstone of their security operation. Hmm, so you got stellar reviews. Stellar reviews from his you, boss. Usually that's what happens, though. That's, oh, that's yeah. The MO. Yeah. You perform well yeah. in your front-facing aspect yeah. of your life, so that way your Dr. Jekyll side can go nuts. Yes, MO. The, the cleaner you are, the more suspect you, the more suspicious you should be. Yep. This guy's a mess. Yeah, yeah. Oh, all right. Yeah, he good. <laughs> the Bellingham police handled the evidence perfectly during their investigation. Pubic hair had fallen off Diane's body as it was moved out of the car. Cops had a white sheet ready underneath the transfer to catch anything that would fall off and easily blow away from the investigation. Hmm. More pubes were found on the steps of the Bayside home, and fibers taken from the carpet of the house matched fibers found in the treads of Karen's and Diane's shoes. It would take several days to determine if the hairs and fibers could conclusively link Kenny to the murdered girls. Meanwhile, they wanted to keep Bianchi under lock and key, which was made super convenient for them when they found stolen goods from Bianchi's work sites mm -hmm. in his home. Mm. That's, a That's a great giveaway. way to get to lock somebody up. Yeah. Chief Mangan remembered the well-publicized Hillside Strangler case from down south in California. Since Kenny had lived in L.A. right before moving up to Washington, Chief Mangan placed calls to LAPD, Glendale PD, and the L.A. Sheriff's Department. The blinds. Mm. They started to collect. Mm -hmm. Connect, I'm sorry. Connect, bro. They starting to connect. It feels good, doesn't it? When Man. stuff starts lining up. It makes sense. Salerno responded to the call. So many missing pieces from his investigation clicked into place. The addresses of Cindy Hudspeth and Christina Weckler on East Garfield, and the last client of Kimberly Martin on Tamarind, matched perfectly Kenny's places of residence when those murders occurred. Salerno practically sprinted up to Washington to assist in the investigation. He left his partner Finnegan with Grogan to run down Bianchi's activities while he was a resident of L.A. Hmm. Evidence began mounting piece by piece that Bianchi was at least one of the Hillside Stranglers, if not THE Hillside Strangler. Hmm. Jewelry found in his home matched descriptions of jewelry worn by two of the victims, Kimberly Martin's ram's horn necklace and Yolanda Washington's turquoise ring. The hair and fiber matches further cemented his guilt. Mm -hmm. That's enough to, to start whipping his ass, in my opinion. Yeah. Lay a little smack yeah, down. Oh yeah, that's enough. Especially we're in the 70s, so oh, you can yeah. definitely still do that. Yeah, bro. Out of the, uh, that's enough for me. Mm -hmm. And if, if be for me to sleep good that night, oh, yeah, that's enough for me, bro. Women's jury in your home, bro. That was the victims. Yeah. Clearly. <laughs> yeah. We got you. Kenneth Alessio Bianchi was born May 22nd, 1951 in Rochester, New York to an alcoholic prostitute who gave him away at birth. Three months later, Frances Bianchi and her husband a line worker at the American Brake Shoe Factory, adopted the baby. He's been described as a born loser. Almost as soon as Kenneth could speak, Frances knew she had a compulsive liar on her hands. Damn. When he was five and a half, Frances was worried about Kenny going into these frequent trances where his eyes would roll to the back of his head and he'd start vibrating. The doctor gave him a diagnosis of petite mal seizures and told Frances not to worry, he'd eventually grow out of them. 
Despite his decent IQ of 116 and his ability to draw and talk very well, he was the definition of an underachiever who couldn't make his grades. Hmm. He was prone to temper tantrums and quick to anger. Hmm. He could read and write quick, but he was still an underachiever. Exactly. Hmm, that's crazy. Read, know. write, draw, but he couldn't express himself. Just like Asperger's a little bit. A little bit, yeah. Fuck, yeah, I guess. I mean, this was the 70s. So. They didn't have it yet. Yeah. yeah. Francis took him to a psychologist who diagnosed Kenny as overly dependent on his mama. Mm-hmm. She took on a huge financial burden, and Kenneth was enrolled in a private Catholic elementary school Mm -hmm. where he absolutely excelled in creative writing. He was getting Mm -hmm. the attention he needed, finally. Mr. Bianchi died of a heart attack when Kenny was just 13, and Francis had to get a second job just to support them. As a direct result of the belt tightening, Kenny had to start going to public school, where classmates and faculty alike remember him as quiet, polite, and neat. He married a girl his age when they graduated in 1971, but neither one of them was mature enough to make the marriage work. She filed for annulment after just eight months, packing up everything and leaving in the dead of night. Eight months, man. God damn. Kenny was crushed. He felt betrayed, used, and abused. I feel him. Another abandonment, just like his prostitute mother. You see, the thing is, though, when you love somebody, like, relationships, to me, in my opinion, they already thinking about gets in my opinion the women already thinking about getting out the relationship like why you yeah why yeah. you still man let me make this let me let me plan this for him oh it's the worst i'm gonna do this yep. for him and all of a sudden uh we should talk yeah uh, i'm thinking like five years down the line yeah and you investments think, man, and stuff dog, and you trying to break up with me yeah like all right, all right. oh man see you then that shit sucks don't call don't write don't visit <sighs> dog that shit sucks bro when he got himself up and over the pain He enrolled in the local community college to study police science and psychology, but Mm -hmm. he flunked out pretty quickly. Mm -hmm. His application was rejected from the sheriff's department, so he fell into a job as a security guard in Rochester. Mm. He started stealing things he was supposed to be guarding, which made him have (laughs) to change jobs often. He soon realized Rochester was dried up for him, and he needed a fresh start out of state where nobody knew him. Mm Mm-hmm. In 1975, Kenny left Rochester for Los Angeles. Mm. He started out living with his cousin, Angelo Buono, who was a bit older and more mature than the 26-year-old Bianchi. At first, Kenny was enraptured by California's open drug and sex attitudes, (laughs) but eventually he felt the urge to settle down. He applied to the LAPD, but there were no openings. Glendale PD rejected him because of lack of experience, so he settled for a job with a tile company and used his first paycheck to get an apartment at 809 East Garfield Avenue in Glendale Hmm. and a 1972 Cadillac sedan, significantly overextending himself financially. He was never very good with money. A caddy, bro. On his first paycheck at a tile company. An apartment and and a a 72 sedan. Very ambitious, but... Fuck, yeah. Why can't you just get the apartment and do what you've been doing to get to work before? Yeah. For at least like a month or two. Take a bus. Pretty much true. That's what he's doing. Don't hitchhike, because you'll get your head cut off. Well, not him, but yeah. <laughs> stay dangerous, mm-hmm. motherfucker. <laughs> <laughs> there were a number of girls who lived in his apartment building. One of them, Christina Weckler, tried her hardest to ignore his advances, but there were others who were much more receptive. He moved in with a woman from work named Kelly Boyd, and in May of 1977, she told him she was expecting their baby. He wanted to marry her right then, but Kelly wasn't so sure. 
While Kenny was indeed very kind to her, he had some glaring faults. He was very jealous, he was immature, and he was a huge liar. Kenny set up a side hustle as a psychologist with a phony degree and credentials. He rented office space from a legitimate psychologist who had no idea Kenny was Fugazi. <laughs> That's smart. When Kelly found out about the counseling service, she was very angry and, of course, a little disturbed. He was making bread, wasn't he? He was defrauding people out oh, of money. He's not uh, a psychologist. Yeah, he's not. No, he's not, but no. he was making bread. No. So she was mad because he was def- defrauding Because he was doing something evil. He was taking advantage of sick people. Mm-hmm. Oh, yeah, they were sick. Mentally ill, yes. Yeah, yeah, Psychology. I'll, I'll fix you. Yeah, and giving them wrong advice. That's not a good thing to do. During October and November 77, the city of L.A. was gripped with fear over the hillside strangler. This had no effect on the couple's relationship. When Kenny started coughing uncontrollably, Kelly urged him to go to the doctor. When he returned, he told her the terrible news that he'd been diagnosed with lung cancer and would need to start immediate treatment. This was, of course, a lie. Kelly's entire world was crumbling down because of this news, but she did everything she could to keep her sick man's spirits high. So he faked the cough? Yep. That's how this little Jewish Costanza shit. He's a lifetime malingerer. He, you fake a cough. It's lung cancer. Wow, that's convenient. Kenny started missing a lot of work, claiming the chemo was making him too sick to move. One day, while off sick, detectives came by to question him about a murder that may have taken place in his building. Mm. The detectives were impressed with the bright young man and crossed him right off their list. <laughs> he even scheduled a ride along with uniformed officers while they were there. When his time came... He spent the entire shift talking the cop's ear off about the Hillside Strangler case. He tried to pick their brain. He was. So what do you know about mm-hmm. What do you think? Kenny and Kelly's relationship became an unhappy one. Often, mm-hmm. Kelly would go stay at her brother's, but would always go back home to Kenny. Mm-hmm. In February, their son Sean was born, and that slapped a band-aid on their problems for a while, but soon enough, they crawled back into the light. From Kelly's perspective, her boyfriend slash fiance was irresponsible about work and money. He would constantly fuck around and call in only to go play cards with his cousin Angelo. His gently used Cadillac was being hunted by repo men due to missed payments. She really hoped that baby Sean would give him a sense of purpose and encourage him to change his ways, but of course he did not. Kelly went back home to Bellingham, Washington, convinced that the hustle and bustle of L.A. had caused all of their problems. It had certainly, in her opinion, sapped everything that was noble and righteous about Kenny, and she couldn't be with him anymore. Her parents and friends back home were a great support system to help her recover. Kenny didn't have that in L.A., Mm. and once again, he felt abandoned by a woman. Once she was gone, he wrote her every day, and finally, in 1978, she agreed to give him another chance, but he would have to move to Bellingham, away from Angelo and away from California. The L.A. police released Bianchi's photo to the media. Immediately, they received a call from a lawyer named David Wood, who had rescued two girls named Becky Spears and Sabra Hanan from Bianchi and Angelo, who'd forced the girls into prostitution through threats and beatings. While Salerno was in Washington, Grogan and Finnegan went to have a chat with Angelo Buono. He was an ugly fuck in his mid-40s with dyed black hair, nasty chompers, and a nose that would protect a cigarette in a rainstorm. On site, the two cops had a hunch they were looking at the other strangler. Mm-hmm. And that's where we're going to pick it up next week 
in the Hillside Stranglers. Yes. Shocking conclusion. Shocking conclusion. Herschel, what did you think about part one? Well, shit, these hillside motherfuckers are dumb and smart at the same time. Especially when the dude goes to, was picking a police officer's brain about well, what about the hillside, which is suspicious because if he was on your list, why was we even talking about this with I you? I know, I know. But they crossed him off because he was a sheriff's reservist. He was a bootlicker. He loves authority. He loves the police. Mm-hmm. A lot of these guys do. Ed Kemper was a definitely one of them. But again, it wasn't no, the study of it really wasn't yeah, at this time. It wasn't all there yet. And like you said, they didn't cooperate too. Nope. Just, right? I, yep. why, I wonder why. Why? LAPD and LA sheriffs have never cooperated. Well, ladies and gentlemen, it's going to do it for the Hillside Part 1. Yeah. We're going to see you next week. My name's been Adam. A-bomb. That's been Herschel. H-bomb. And uh, we've been Bubble Butt Podcast X. So we'll see you then. Thanks for stopping by. Yes, sir.